0: I'm excited about
1: how technology is uh, being democratized. How it's plunging in cost. One of our missions is to positively impact one billion people. The
0: relevance of a new technology to solving problems that affect like a billion people. All great stuff happens because someone inspires someone else to do something. The next wave
2: of innovation is going to be eroding the territory. How's it, everybody? Welcome to 2021. Hope you had a great break in 2020 and that you are ready to take this year on with positivity and energy. These recordings of these podcasts were done during the lockdown period of our Exponential Africa Live show. Hope you enjoy them. There's some amazing people on it. Uh, Take a listen and learn something. Time to move into the main part of tonight's show, the changing face of AR. My good friend Ashley, who's also in AR, always quotes Jack Ma, who says, just like you have your water pipe and your electricity pipe, you're going to need to have a data pipe. It's just that important. And we are seeing that between 70 to 90% of all customer interactions are likely to be conducted or managed by AR in the future, and virtual beings will fill many online jobs. Individuals will be able to define and design the personalized products and services they require in sectors ranging from travel, banking, savings and insurance. From self-aware and self-replicating software systems and robots that are emerging to autonomous vehicles or predicting robo-advisors. The future will be better from the convergence or augmentation of this technology with others. And artificial intelligence is helping the fight against COVID-19 in so many ways and many professionals are embracing the amazing, augmenting, and enhancing power of AR. The conversation for this show will focus on all the different ways we can practically embrace and incorporate AI into our lives. Tonight, we have Dr. Vivian Ming and Dr. Mark Nasilla. Let's start with Vivian. Vivian Ming is a professional mad scientist, co-founder and executive chair at Socos Labs, theoretical neuroscientist, entrepreneur, author, and mother of two. Dr. Vivian Ming is featured frequently for her research and inventions in the Financial Times, The Atlantic, Quartz Magazine, and The New York Times. Co-founded with wife Dr. Norma Ming, SOKOS Labs is a mad science incubator dedicated to solving some of the world's most pressing problems. Previously, Vivian has pursued her research in cognitive neuroprosthetics as a visiting scholar at UC Berkeley's Redwood Center for Theoretical Neuroscience. In her free time, Vivian works to design AR systems to help treat her son's diabetes, predict manic episodes in bipolar sufferers, and reunite orphan refugees with extended family members. She sits on the board of numerous companies and nonprofits. for, re- for relaxation, f- she frequents the sci-fi section of Audible and spends time with her wife and children. Vivian, great to have you with us here tonight. Uh, it's lovely to be here. You did the whole spiel. Uh, I feel <laughs> so important. Well, you are. I mean, I remember you came, you've been coming to South Africa for a number of years. You came to our Singularity South Africa Summit in uh, 2017. And that was probably one of the most talked about talks uh, over the last couple of years. And uh, I remember seeing you at the Thailand Summit, I think last year, uh, in the speaker room. And you were pacing up and down. And I said to you, what are you doing? And you actually were listening to an Audible there during the time, there was no time to waste.
0: There's no downtime. Uh, I, I have an amazing and privileged life and the, what I want to do with it is uh, help other people. Uh, I, my life will be amazing. You know, the only thing that's a hardship for me right now is uh, I'd have already been to South Africa twice this year and instead I haven't gotten out of Berkeley. Uh, Other than that, I I have this opportunity to take incredibly challenging problems. And if I think my team can make a meaningful difference, uh, I pay for everything. And we go and try and come up with a new and unique solution. And if we actually succeed, then we give it all away. Uh, And one of the core technologies we make use of, as I have throughout my entire career, is artificial intelligence. And so that's 20 years of trying to solve seemingly unsolvable problems using this particular tool. And it certainly taught me a lot about what it means to do something meaningful with artificial
2: intelligence. So exciting, and uh, I mean, you've had some amazing projects over the, over the uh, years. What are some of the things you're working on at the moment uh, that's exciting you? Well, we have a, a couple of things that are coming out.
0: Uh, you mentioned working on diabetes. Uh, you know, years ago now, my son was diagnosed with type one diabetes, and we hacked all of his equipment and built an AI that monitored him and actually made predictions. Uh, and it was it was amazing. It was amazing as a mom to be able to do something that helps someone, and I kind of got addicted to that. So, um, some of the things that are really exciting to me right now are. Gosh, I've got almost six neurotechnologies companies. One is working on phasic light treatment. So high frequency light that actually treats dementia. Another is using electrical stimulation, little patches you put on your head that actually increase working memory span. Um, And I have a project I've been putting together to treat kids with traumatic brain injuries Um, One of the most common symptoms is working memory span disorders, and we're even coming up with a new algorithm for diabetes, a very simple one which uh, anyone could potentially use to treat their kids. In all of these cases, um, we're looking at delivering technologies to the people who need it and not worrying so much about whether they can pay for it or not. Uh, in the more human space, you might say, that the squishier, um, we're working on projects using AI. Uh, you, one of your stories was about uh, happiness and relationship happiness. We're looking at issues like purpose. We're doing a big analysis of data from literally millions of people to understand the difference between people that have a strong sense of purpose and where it takes their life. But most importantly to me, how someone can build a purpose. It's one thing to say purpose matters, it's another to be able to use something that seems so inhuman, an artificial intelligence, to tell people how to be even more human. And then one of the last ones is something we talked about just before the show, we built a big mashup of economic models and artificial intelligence to track in near real time, every single job created, every patent discovered, all of the funding and and sales, uh, done by startup founders, uh, and most particularly, startup founders uh, that don't look like they came from central casting in Hollywood. They, they're not the white, uh, nerdy teenage man from uh, you know Harvard or Stanford, all of those other peoples that are changing our lives, making things better, and their stories aren't getting told. So we have this chance to build the system that actually says, you have a job because maybe someone just a little bit different than you created that job and most importantly uh and happy to sit down and chat with cereal about this uh, what could local policymakers do to create a change in their community to create even more jobs uh and foster economic growth and and it's just it's incredibly fun for me as a nerd to be able to mash up big data and machine learning and economic models but in a way that directly helps people, in a way that's about humanity.
2: No, absolutely, I, I love that. It's it's completely uh, in line with our, our mission and goals to you know use how can we use this tech to actually make a better world for ourselves. And uh, I think it's you know it's, it's so exciting that those every one of those projects um, could be it could be a show in itself. It sounds really really interesting. Um, but thanks so much. We're going to, we're going to uh, welcome Mark onto the show, and then we'll, we'll get into the panel. Uh, let me welcome our next guest, Mr. Dr. Mark Nasilla, who is the Chief Analytics Officer at FNB Risk. Uh, as an experienced data science and ad- analytics expert, he has ensured that the techniques and methodologies that is in- introduced into FNB are at the forefront of where banking is headed, both locally and internationally. Some of, of his career highlights and awards include developer and the brain behind Manila, an AI system FMB has been harnessing to reimagine its risk management and forensic due diligence processes. He is recognized locally and internationally as a leading force in the development of new and up and coming techniques and methodologies With, within the highly competitive areas of AI, data science and machine learning. Dr. Nasilla has presented at local and international conferences such as the Business Tech Digital Banking Conference, South Africa, the Chief Data and Analytics Officer Forums in South Africa and the UK, and the European Simulation and Modeling Conference. Dr. Nasila has published and written opinion pieces for the Daily Maverick, RT-Web, Coronian Intelligence, and the European Simulation and Modeling Associations. Mark, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much, Mick, for having me. I'm glad to be here.
2: Uh, Mark, I remember last year we were in Silicon Valley at uh, and looking at AR companies around legal ARs, and we visited a company in Berkeley where, where Vivian is currently that is doing um, Extherma. They're trying to uh, <clears throat> trying to keep organs alive for longer uh, using a special liquid. And now we're back in South Africa, and you've had an, done some amazing things in AR. How's your journey been getting getting into the space?
1: Thank you, Mick. So, my journey in AI began around 2009 after I gave a talk at uh, Leicester University at the European Simulation and Modeling Association. And at this time, there was clear evidence that there was exponential growth of data, and uh, big data was uh, going to reinvent a lot of processes, obviously, uh, together with machine learning models. Uh, Two years later i joined the bank and um, we started doing some work on financial crime detection as well as marketing and uh, with with all these algorithms uh, we were able to be more accurate in predicting structured events for example you know credit card fraud um, uh, offering products to the right customer at the right time in 2014 we managed to put together a framework for the first time for uh, monitoring the risks of money laundering and terrorist financing. Over time, we've now extended this to cognitive uh, events where uh, we combine the prediction of, uh, of, of events or, uh, or, or outcomes so that we can streamline some of our processes and be more efficient. And this include enabling our forensic systems, our forensic processes to to be much more efficient, to get to the right decisions much quicker. And uh, this is where we actually build our AI system uh, called Manila. We have looked at other processes with the view of enabling the bank drive its digital transformation strategy. For example, the computer vision and with a view of uh, of, of, of leveraging image recognition to, uh, to enable our customers navigate our digital platforms are much, much, much more safer and much more quicker. So in a nutshell, that's been my journey and it's been exciting. And it's, it's clear evidence that AI is not a myth anymore. Every aspect of society or social domain is being redefined and re, re, redeveloped so that the future can be much more better.
2: Now, thanks for that. Uh, let, let's dive a little bit into Manila, the, the project that uh, you mentioned. Apparently, you saved uh, 70% efficiencies uh, because of this AR system
1: Manila. Is that right? Yes, 100%. And uh, how does it work exactly? As as you're aware, as a bank, we're required to monitor certain risks on an ongoing basis. Uh, For example, the risks of money laundering, terrorist financing, and other forms of financial crime, obviously with a view of driving desirability and meeting regulatory requirements. We have various algorithms and rules across the bank that monitor these risks on an ongoing basis. And whenever a customer or a transaction is flagged for this risk, they have to go through what is called an enhanced forensic due diligence process. In this process, the forensic analysts collect a lot of information around the customer. Then they do use this information to put together insights. Then they put together a handwritten rationale around why the customer has been flagged for that risk, and whether there's any evidence to support the presence of the risk before they make a decision. You can imagine in the world of today, this is a very, very lengthy and tedious process. In in these times of digitization, tough economic conditions our systems will be subjected to a lot of acts of fraud and financial crime. And the quicker we get to these decisions, the, the better for our customers and our platforms. And Manila was built to enhance this process. So just like the analyst, Manila pulls together all the sources of information. Manila puts together insights, including generating uh, graphs, insights in tables. And then Manila generates a a natural language rationale, which is basically what, or similar to what the analyst would have done. And in this process, 90% of the work is now being done by Manila. And all the analyst is now doing is making sure that they perform quality assurance, as well as providing feedback to enable Manila uh, learn uh, more about how financial crimes are, are changing. Much of that 70% come from the fact that Manila is very consistent, is very accurate. Manila can consume a lot of information at the same time. It takes eight seconds for Manila to generate a whole synopsis. A process which used to take lots of hours or days even depending on how big the profile of the customer is using the same concept we're scaling this across uh, different use cases in the bank with a view of streamlining these processes so that we are much more efficient in the way we operate amazing
2: amazing I think it's uh, it's incredible how you can you know uh, make that much more efficient and take days of work down to seconds And that is, uh, you know, the incredible um, capabilities of embracing AR. Now, uh, Vivian, I want to ask you, there's been a lot of fear about AR taking over humanity, but, you know, there was, over the last couple of years, it's been this Hollywood sort of uh, dystopia that we've been projected. And um, I feel like a lot of that's calming down now because people are realizing these amazing benefits of AR. How do you think that this has changed now? And why are people, uh, you know, why is it quieted down?
0: Uh, You know, uh, the funny thing is, uh, AI is a magic pill technology. At least that's the way people perceive it. Um, Good or bad, it's going to be this one magic pill. It'll take over the world and destroy everything. It will magically allow us to have flying cars and uh, everything you ever dreamed was true. The reality has been something both much more modest and, as Mark said, much more pervasive. Uh, and transformative than I think people appreciate. So, you know, again, Hollywood drives so much of how people perceive artificial intelligence right now. Even the supposed thought leaders that drive a lot of these conversations uh, are really, they don't know what they're talking about. Uh, You had a new story about GPT-3 and it is a truly fascinating technology. Uh, the idea that it can, simply by turning numbers into numbers, generate very seeming human-produced uh, text. Uh, that is fascinating. But just understand, it understands nothing about the text that it's producing. It has no concept of what it's writing about. Uh, if you want to get a little bit more wonky, uh, think of it as a, a massive probability distribution. Just an incredibly complicated register of all the probabilities of some words following other words. Um, and if you really want to know how it's different than us, not just that it doesn't even understand what it's doing, uh, it is the other story you referenced. This little thing in here, mine may be defective, but the one thing it is, is extremely power efficient. Uh, you know, I've got some light bulbs running here that probably use more power than my brain does. Uh, whereas training up GP3, T3 or Google's language model, BERT, essentially a single training run takes the uh, entire energy um, consumed in an American household for an entire year. So it does one thing, it talks almost human-like. Um, we do everything that humans can do with you know, orders of magnitude less power. Uh, and in that sense, uh, you know, understanding it is not this technology that tomorrow is going to take over the world. It just, it doesn't have that capability. But let me give an example of something that to me has felt tr- like a transformation and yet might seem modest to anyone else. If you are watching this on YouTube or you use, for example, Google Meets, and this is a feature available in many different uh, video technologies, you can get a real time transcript Of your talk. Now that may seem small, but understand 10 years ago, much less 20 years ago or or earlier when I got started, the idea that for free, a one time conversation that may never be produced again could have a very accurate transcript produced in real time. And you can do it in multiple languages at once. That's amazing. No, it is not flying car technology but it is a transformation. I'm sure people from a business perspective appreciate the power of being able to do this financial analysis that Mark was talking about so quickly. I've done seven startups, every single one of them, a VC said, but could you do financial fraud detection? So this is clearly a market of real importance uh, and it's sexy in its own way, but again, it's not an AI that that drives your car, it's, it's not these big ideas uh, or the scary ones like Skynet. And yet it is transform, transformative uh, to the world. So understand AI truly is an incredibly powerful tool. It, it is not a, a, an intelligent thing like we are, but it is a tool and maybe one of the most powerful tools ever developed. And in the hands of a creative person, it can transform the world. Uh, or we can just choose to build a whole bunch of tools and automate them and put a lot of people out of work. Uh, both are options. And um, But what's not coming, at least tomorrow, is you know an AI that is super intelligent and takes over everything. No one's even invented a technology remotely like that. We have no idea how to do it. What we have is a tool, a, a truly powerful tool. And what we need is the education systems, the social structures inside companies, leadership structures that allow creative people to do amazing work. Just like, the, again, the analyst Mark was talking about, now empowered within seconds to make decisions, to figure out what to do about a risk profile, rather than having to spend all their time building the profile in the first place. If you empower them to make decisions, then they do something amazing. They drive the economy. If instead you see them only as the routine work, which has been automated, then you get rid of them and you completely automate that stream of your business. Those are two legitimate choices. One costs a lot less than the other. The long run choice is build a creative economy where AI is this astonishing tool. Uh, And I, I think we can give so many examples of where that would be a transformative experience that doesn't look like a Hollywood movie.
2: No, I really love that. I love your analogy of the, the hammer. AI is like a hammer and just, what are we going to use it for? And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's to build better humans. It's, it's enhancing and augmenting all of our, our workflows.
0: And, and it's, I think it's worth understanding. We're, right now, uh, even now, as AI is just starting to mature a little bit, as, as an industry, we might say, uh, we are still training a generation of largely young, largely men, on how to build hammers, uh, how to tune metaparameters and models, how to architect uh, databases um, for problems which are pre-given to them. You know, here's all the images on ImageNet. Uh, Here are the labels of what dog breeds are in those images. Build an algorithm that names dog breeds better. Well, that is not a real problem. A real problem is, Vivian, your son has diabetes. Good luck with that. A real problem is our company doesn't know how to retain black women. Uh, Please help us figure that out. Those are human problems. They do not have a solution that AI will magically figure out for us. Instead, creative people need to learn how to build those hammers, uh, but they need to learn how to use them. So we need to move away from this idea that someone that has spent six years getting a PhD on how to build a hammer knows how to make a house. Those are two different things. And you're the, the, the initiative that you had in your reel, the AI for Africa, uh, all of the young people there, the core thing that I heard was teaching them how to solve problems. That's what AI is about. Uh, yeah, there are technical details that you need to get right, but ultimately it is about learning how to solve problems.
2: Yeah, and, I, and I think AI has helped us during this time of of COVID in so many ways, and during this pandemic, you know, from predicting to detection. Uh, Mark, what have you seen in terms of how AI has helped during this this COVID pandemic?
1: So AI has played a different different roles uh, during this pandemic. The first one is actually just dealing with the pandemic itself. We've seen uh, a lot of companies use uh, uh, what are called uh, um, um, models to tr- to try and t- track and trace uh, how this virus is is, is spreading. Uh, these are almost what we call agent-based models in machine learning, and this is the view of understanding um, how different areas can resource themselves to deal with the number of in- number of infections. Uh, surprisingly, there is um, a company in Canada called uh, Blue Dot that actually predicted the spread of of of, of this virus even before the World Health Organization knew about it. We've also seen uh, other organizations leverage AI in helping diagnose uh, the virus. An example would be a company called InterVision, which actually has developed an AI system that is enabling um, doctors uh, actually just to work with the system and this system will diagnose, take symptoms from the patients uh, given that a lot of hospitals are overwhelmed with very, very many patients, making it difficult to handle all of them at the same time, Alibaba has a very amazing um, uh, diagnosing system, which is actually ninety six percent accurate in picking up whether someone has the virus or do not does not have the virus. A lot of insurance companies are leveraging AI with dealing with claims due to the pandemic. And this is to avoid uh, face-to-face interaction or 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 allow people moving around while looking for evidence or even health practitioners trying to look at patients to actually confirm that the the, the patient is infected. On the other hand, in optimizing processes in hospitals, we've seen uh, a lot of hospitals in China leverage AI to make sure they're protecting patients and being doctors. As an example, uh, we have a company called Purdue, which has built robots that deliver medicine and food to patients, to making sure that they protect nurses from being infected. And then we have a company called Blue Ocean, which came up with an amazing AI system that 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 actually uses ultraviolet uh, capabilities to to sterilize uh, equipment so that uh, you know nurses are not exposed. We know very well there's a lot of efforts that are ongoing in making sure that these, they develop a cure uh, and uh, a vaccine. DeepMind, for example, is using AI to making sure that there's an understanding of the protein composition of the virus so that com- other companies that are, are trying to develop a cure can design a cure properly. In terms of engagement, we've seen a lot of doctors uh, um, uh, leverage chatbots to making sure they have a digital engagement with patients, they monitor their progress, as, as well as uh, kind of pre- prescribing the right medicine for the right patient based on the symptoms that they're experiencing. So there's been a whole application of AI to dealing with complexities that have come with this pandemic. On the other side we mustn't forget that a lot of businesses have had to leverage technology to dealing or navigating with what has happened Uh, and obviously there is digitization uh, which has allowed a lot of engagement between businesses and their customers Uh, there's been new ways of working Uh, things have changed Uh, you know people have to work from home and uh, we've seen a lot of organizations leverage tools like Manila to making sure that there is no need to move around and eventually uh, no stand a risk of being exposed to the virus. We've seen other organizations like the education departments leverage augmented reality and uh, you know virtual reality to making sure that they, there's a continuous process of learning. And there's so much evidence that When dealing with problems like this pandemic, technology is at the center of how we can navigate through this as well as uh, redefining a better future going forward.
2: No, thanks. And uh, I mean, what for me, it's like AR came, you know, it's coming to save the day. Uh, You know, it's one of these technologies that that very quickly has has helped uh, during this pandemic. And staying in healthcare, uh, Vivian, we've got a question from somebody in the audience who wanted to ask you, can you tell us a bit more around your son and, and the diabetes? Um, you know, what what are you doing? What, what are you doing to to try help the, uh, his diabetes?
0: Absolutely. Uh, and then I, so it turns out, Soko's Labs has also had the chance to work on a couple of projects in COVID as well. So let me get to those. But uh, several years ago, uh, when Felix had just turned four. Um, he it looked like he had the flu, and then within just a few days, he'd lost all of this weight. His body was literally eating itself. It was type 1 diabetes. So for any of the viewers that don't know the different kinds of diabetes, this one is an autoimmune disease. A little less common, uh, but it is the one where uh, it doesn't matter what you do. If you don't get artificial insulin, then essentially you will starve to death. Uh, so it's terrifying. Uh, it, it was the hardest Uh, emotional thing I've ever gone through was was the the four days in the intensive care unit with my son. But after that, you know, if you use an insulin pump, you can lead a very good life. The only challenge is making certain your blood glucose levels, the amount of sugar in your blood stays within the right range, within the the healthy range that a normal functioning system, a normal pancreas would have kept you in. Uh, So... The way it was done when my son was first diagnosed was literally we hand wrote some numbers on a sheet of paper, and a doctor just looked at them and say, "Here's how we'll fiddle the dial on your son's insulin pump." And I was stunned. I was amazed that this is how diabetes was still being treated. Uh, you know, I, I build bottles of brains. Uh, I, I built things that can hear and see, understand happiness and we're still handwriting numbers down to treat diabetes. So I hacked his equipment, turns out I broke all, broke all sorts of US federal laws and I sent the data to my own personal server and I built a model that pre- predicted uh, an hour or more into the future, whether his blood glucose levels would go higher or low. So if anyone out there is a parent like me, then one of the things you know is you go to bed scared and you wake up even more scared. Uh, certainly in those early days, because you don't know what's going to happen. Will he go low during the night while I'm asleep? That could actually be fatal. Will he spend the whole night high and it leads to all the terrible consequences, blindness and and, uh, kidney failure, all of these things. Uh, So we built this system and it says, you know, actually tonight he's going to be high. Let's give a little extra insulin. He doesn't need it right now, but he will. So we built this system and we, we use it on my son. I actually had a, a Google Glass that I wore every day back then because I would get real time updates, but it was intensive. I had to put in everything he ate. I built a little AI to pull nutrition information from websites around the world and make predictions of how they would, the food would interact with one another. What we're building today is a system that only uses the data from what's called a continuous glucose monitor every five minutes. We get an estimate of how much sugar is in his blood, and from that alone, in essence, our, our model builds a model, uh, you might say, builds a story of what led to this moment in my son's life and what is likely next. So even though it doesn't know that he will or won't eat in the future, that's the future, it actually builds this predictive model that says, you know what, because he was low yesterday morning and because he was high yesterday night, it actually increases the likelihood that will be, he will be high again tonight. And it subtly address, uh, adjusts his insulin flow to compensate for that. Um, so you, know, you, com- you combine this with other kinds of technologies uh, such as closed loop technologies that allow the, the insulin pump to monitor itself. And suddenly you have a predictive system that at least in simulation, works better than the actual biological system. And that is truly exciting. Uh, Obviously, my job here is to invent. I can use this for my son, but after that, we give it away uh, to the device makers, uh, free of cost, and they have the chance to then build that into their systems. So this is what we're doing for our son. uh, And I will even throw out Uh, that if in the future anyone, no strings attached, wants to donate uh, their personal diabetes data, you can visit Socos Labs and sign up and we can email you about it. We can't give you anything back. Uh, I'm afraid it will have to be a one-way helping people in the future donation, but that kind of data is incredibly valuable uh, and, and it can be really transformative.
2: Wow, it's just absolutely incredible. And I mean, how does the machine learn? What happens if his insulin was a bit low on that evening when it was predicting it was going to be high? Does it does it know? So
0: that? it takes that into account as well. It's it's seeing how does it change. In, in other words, think of it. Uh, I use this metaphor often. Uh, it's sometimes AI is very complicated. So you want to look it down to some basics. So think of it like Sherlock Holmes. Uh, what we're talking about is uh, probab- uh, inference. We're, we're talking about probabilistic inference, but think of this like Sherlock Holmes. You have a bunch of little clues. He was low at a certain time. He was high at another time. There's a certain degree of fluctuation at a certain time. All of these are clues like Holmes might have. There's a. Uh, You know, a tan line where a ring used to be, and the person has a certain accent and a little bit of a limp. And you take those clues and you say, what is the most likely story that explains all of those clues? And uh, if you get a new clue, like, uh, you know, we thought he was going to go high during the night, but then in an hour we get slightly different data, the model updates itself, takes its history into account, and makes a new set of predictions. So, um, you know, it's really challenging sometimes, particularly with real world data, which is messy and imperfect, it's noisy and has missing pieces. And it really is very Sherlock Holmesian to just take a couple of clues and offer the best answer you can. And the important part of that, and I don't wanna get too uh, wonky here, but the important part of that is to understand the confidence of the model. Um, Don't overpromise. So if it thinks he's gonna go high, but it has low confidence, you know what? Only make a small change. Um, If it's very confident, then make a bigger change. uh, And we can adapt in that same way. For example, uh, we are working on a project to predict uh, high risk spreaders of COVID-19. So the idea is use social graph analysis before anyone is infected use social graph analysis to find those people that are most likely to become super spreaders. Um, and then in that case, we want to keep into account how likely they are to come in contact with the elderly, how likely they are to be in high density locations like bars uh, and, and nightclubs. And from that, it turns out, you can make very good predictions and then you can just proactively go to someone like that and say, you know what, uh, we will pay you to stay home just take a break for a month. Uh, And particularly if you uh, do this, uh, you know, 50 to 70% of deaths in COVID have been, at least in Europe and the United States, have been in elder care facilities. If we went in and did exactly this with the care workers at elder care facilities, uh, we would have dramatically reduced the number of mortality uh, deaths worldwide. Uh, And unfortunately, no one took actions like this. So we like to build these concept pieces and just offer them up. You know, here is a way you could intervene before anyone got sick, uh, rather than after the fact. And, and again, they are small tools, but used creatively, these things can be transformative.
2: It's almost like the pen, the power of the pen. You know, when the pen was the main technology, it had, you know, you could use it for such great uh, impact and power. Uh, now you've got this AR tool that you can do something similar, uh, but but AR is fed with this big data, and uh, as you mentioned, and uh, you know I think Mark is big data one of the key factors for for this AR revolution. How does it work, and what you know with, why is big data so important for AR models?
1: So the field of AI actually has been there for long, you know, from the early 50s and the significant growth of application of AI to solving problems started off in the early nineties, you know, obviously with the growth of the internet, which has led to uh, a lot of uh, data being generated. Most of AI application um, make use of uh, algorithms, or machine learning algorithms, which make use of data. Now, the more data you have, uh, the better the machine uh, algorithms will make better predictions because they are able to actually um, find out more complex patterns that make up these events. And also, the more data we have, the more understanding around the events we're trying to predict, the more understanding around the processes and how these algorithms influence different processes or workflows uh, that we're trying to enhance if you think about different uh, a lot of applications that are much more mature they've been around applications where there's been more information that allows uh, machine learning algorithms to learn from them we do have different areas that are way way behind because we've had to embark on processes of Uh, collecting data experimentally or even making sure we uh, simulate data so that we can allow uh, these models to learn from them. So data is at the center uh, of allowing us to make better predictions as well as we've seen much more improvement on algorithms because these algorithms uh, predict certain events around life and one of the reasons they failed before was uh, because there was not enough data so that they could be aligned towards life or what we were predicting. So big data is at the center. It's actually the fuel of, 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 of machine learning and AI.
2: No, Thanks for that. Uh, I'm going to move on to some of the questions. The questions are coming in fast and, and, and hard. Hope you guys are ready for them. We've got a question from uh, Daniel McKaylee, who's asking, is general AI realistic? Also, where is the best examples of implementation of narrow AI? Uh, Vivian, do you wanna uh, start with that?
0: Sir, let's start with general AI. So this is the idea of artificial general intelligence, uh, having an AI that is as smart as we are. And the assumption is if it can program itself and it's as smart as we are, it will very quickly become smarter. Um, So I'm a neuroscientist. I just happen to use machines to study the brain uh, and so I think we're an existence proof. We compute. Therefore, it is possible to have general artificial intelligence in the same sense it's possible to have general natural intelligence. We're probably a lot less intelligent than we actually think, but granting that, um, uh, I mean, look at who's in the US White House. But granting that, uh, when we build these sorts of algorithms, you have to understand uh, they are fundamentally narrow. Uh, There are some people that think if we just make this algorithm big enough, if we take a particular class of algorithms such as reinforcement learning algorithms uh, that can learn to solve problems on their own, that if we just make it big enough, it will become a general intelligence. And quite simply, there's no reason to believe that that's true. Uh, it just is not uh, evident in anything we know about the world that the kinds of algorithms we use today will ever become truly intelligent. Uh, so I think what we need, if we're ever going to make that progress, is some sort of a quantum leap. Just the way deep neural networks were a jump forward uh, in the quality of artificial intelligence that, it, that from what had come before, something new. And my proposal for that space is causal. Uh, artificial intelligence, machines that have models of why the world works, not just patterns of data. Until we get there, I don't believe that we will ever have general artificial intelligence.
2: Uh, thanks for that, uh, Mark. Do you want to comment on on, on that as well?
1: No, I agree, hundred uh, percent. A lot of applications today uh, mean mostly around weak AI, where we're looking at modelling or executing single events. Um, we've seen. Uh, in China today, they've got autonomous uh, restaurants and, and it's just basically a combination of, uh, of, of, of single applications of AI. But uh, I, I do agree with Vivian Foley that uh, we're not at a level where we can say, uh, we, 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 we have general AI. Uh, in, in some areas, we, we're still uh, dealing with basically simple machine learning to allow algorithms just learn from simple data and make simple predictions. You know
0: what, OpenAI actually has, uh, you want an example of of one that I thought was cool. Admittedly, it's a toy problem. They build an agent-based model that learned how to play hide and seek. So one team needs to hide, the other team needs to seek, uh, and they get points for getting to the end without getting found and vice versa and then they trained it up. And you can go visit OpenAI's website, you can see actual animations made of the games that are played, and understand, it is very interesting, the AIs are independent of one another. They learn how to play together. In that sense, very exciting. But then look at the bottom on what's called epochs. How many games of uh, hide and seek have to get played before these little AIs figure out even what hide and seek is. And it's millions, in some cases, billions of games. Can you imagine even the littlest child taking billions of games to figure out hide and seek? Um, So it's fascinating what modern narrow AI can do, but also understand its its limitations. And one of them is important for future-proofing. It is the very nature of big data. All of this is routine. What it can learn to do is the things we already know how to do. And it can do some of those better than we can, certainly faster. But it can't explore the unknown with the same sophistication that a human can, at least for now, at least for modern technologies. So this is our relative role. Want to future-proof Africa? Understand humans will provide the creativity and possibly AI will provide the productivity. And you need to put those two things together in a rich way.
2: You know, it's so interesting. I watched a game about a week ago where you could be an AI god. You could be a god to other ARs. I don't know if you've heard of that game where you have these AR beings on a planet and you just create these objects and things for them and the ARs learn by themselves and sort of develop on their own. Have you heard of that game? I haven't come across that one yet. I'm gonna to have to look it up. That's quite interesting because you play God to the ARs, and they, uh, through reinforcement learning, uh, they develop on their own uh, in this little like 3D ball world. Um, so you know, and let's move over to a bit about virtual beings and avatars. Uh, you know, AR. What we're seeing at the moment is a lot of uh, virtual assistants or animated beings that are AR bots. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of the AR Foundation, where um, they created Biz Stone, the the, the founder of Twitter in AR, or Deepak Chopra. Um, have you guys heard about this at all? Um, no,
0: I, I haven't heard of it. But uh, so you're saying they're creating virtual versions of these people, little avatars that you can interact with?
2: Yeah, so it's almost like Soul Machines. I don't know if you've heard of the company Soul Machines in New Zealand. They make these I animated characters. I do know Soul characters. Machines. Yes.
0: And and it's interesting. I mean, the implication of something like Soul Machines or uh, virtual avatars is, for example, if you have a rich enough data set about someone, say you're Mark Zuckerberg uh, or Jack Ma or someone, you might be able to create a plausible simulation of them. Uh, Not to say, again, that it's truly an artificial version of them, like someone has downloaded themselves into a computer, but you might genuinely, you could imagine uh, in some places, you might almost have uh, a little computer in in your home, a little testament to your your ancestors where they're all simulated. So you could go ask them questions. Uh, And and then boy, does that have implications? Who owns that? Does Mark Zuckerberg own your simulated grandfather now that he's an avatar online? Uh, The funny thing for me in a lot of this is uh, 20, some odd years ago when I got started, we were working on uh, virtual avatars ourselves. Um, I was working on this system for doing facial analysis. uh, And the idea was rather than transmit a raw image over the very narrow bandwidth of phones at the time, what if we could just transmit some data about facial features? And then you could animate an avatar on the other side. And then you could be essentially that person you could change the voice, you could change the image. Well, now uh, you can do that. And it shouldn't be a shock you can do that because my undergraduate lab got bought by Apple. So all of that technology got rolled into the iPhone. Um, so, you know, beyond uh, creating avatars to simulate uh, people that have g- passed or uh, create completely artificial versions, there's the chance for each of us to be a different person as well. And that has interesting ethical implications.
2: Yeah, and it's also, what are the ethics around um, security or, or uh, you know, uh, deep fakes and things like that and, and, and the meaning of truth uh, using these types of things? So, um, I Well, think... that
0: sounds like something a, a bank might genuinely have an opinion about, I would say. Uh, yeah. But, I, you know, it's uh, there's other implications as well. I just had a question about this. We do a lot of work in economic inclusion. And one question I got asked recently is, well, we know humans are biased and one of those biases uh, is around race, is another is around gender. What if we just took all that away? And, and we, we were all just, because now we're in a remote world anyways, we don't have to be in an office. What if we could just be anonymous? Uh, and unfortunately, there is something uh, powerful. In fact, one of the the most effective ways, in fact, the only truly effective way to break through people's biases is spend time with people that violate your stereotypes. So there's actually, even beyond issues of financial ethics, there are some serious uh, problems with what happens when the only people we interact with are people that Uh, look just like us not simply because we live in a certain community but because you know what I don't want to see people that look different uh everyone's white now and everyone has an American accent uh it's too difficult for me to worry about every all that difference and our brains uh will no longer have the chance to learn that that difference is actually valuable so there's some pretty profound implications for what it means to be human in all of this
2: Wow, that, that is seriously uh, interesting, and uh, I think we're going to need another show to, to dive into that. Um, <laughs> but uh, I'll ju- I'm going to take one or two last questions, and then we'll have some closing comments. Um, Mark, we've got a question from Chabisa Magaba, who's asking, um, I'm enjoying this conversation, actually, actually asking Dr. Vivian, what are your thoughts on the impact of AR on unemployment rates? Um, we, let's start with Mark, and then, and then Viv, if you can uh, also comment.
1: So the, the issue of uh, the implication on, on, on unemployment is very complex, and it entirely depends on how organizations uh, uh, drive their AI strategies. And by this I mean is, is that um, we're at a time where a lot of organizations are reimagining themselves, um, countries, companies, and they're recreating new industries. Um, it's Reminds me of, uh, of, of of a book by uh, Kai-Fu Lee, where he talks about AI superpowers, where they will reimagine um, new uh, industries, create new jobs. A lot of things you're seeing today might not be there, but then we also have different organisations who are going to digitise their old processes. So you, you you basically take your old existing processes and lump them on technology and in those instances, there's a, there's a realistic chance that a lot of people will lose employment because machines can do a lot of functions much, much better than than, than we human because they can process a lot of data, they can provide more accurate, uh, more accurate insights than we can do because we can process information, um, very little information at a time. So it entirely depends on the strategies, but it, this is not just about unemployment, it's about the future of everything because the the AI strategy uh, being run by an organization means that um, the future can be much brighter or you can just use AI to streamline what you already have. And if everything around you is changing and you're lagging behind, it means even with your investment in AI, you're not likely to be there for, for a very, very long time. So it entirely depends on the strategy you're running with AI. Awesome, thanks so much for that. Uh,
2: Vivian, uh, do you want to comment on that? Yeah,
0: um, so I thought uh, everything Mark said was great uh, and and on point. Uh, We've had the chance, and I'm I'm gonna give a kind of a wonky answer here, uh, getting into the weeds. Um, AI is superlative at routine work. So think about all of the kind of work that you might experience in your daily life. Think about how much of it is truly creative, where the job you are doing, your value proposition is literally you. No one else would do that job the same as you. The majority of work is not that. Uh, uh, Even amongst the professional labor, uh, doctors and lawyers and engineers, software developers, most of what we do is highly routine. And uh, certainly the vast majority of white collar unemployment is highly routine. So now let's start to think of it. We have different kinds of work. We have a lot of physical labor. We have routine uh, knowledge labor. We have highly creative knowledge labor. If we build what's called a heterogeneous heterogeneous model of how AI affects labor productivity and the costs, I'll, I'll stop with the wonkiness there. What emerges, what we find is that creative economy is lifted. Your productivity is launched. Again, the the analysts that uh, Mark was mentioning that are empowered, what took days now takes seconds, and they can do creative things with those insights. That is the kind of job that flourishes. So a lot of people talk about AI. Will it create jobs or will it destroy jobs? Very likely it will create many jobs, but who will be qualified for them? we need to pull as many people into that creative economy as possible because that middle chunk, that white collar but routine labor that most of us do, that is exactly what is going to go away. Uh, Not the jobs per se, but the individual tasks that make them up. Those are highly automatable, you are very expensive, And I would never needed you as an individual human being in the first place. I just needed someone to carry out the routine labor. So we see those jobs either going away or being what we call deprofessionalized, shifted down to less educated workers who now empowered with AI, can do the same amount of work, but for less cost. So the last group then is the lowest end of the socioeconomic ladder. Uh, And here's the brutal truth what they do is not worth building an AI to do. So farm labor, warehousing, people are building robots in those spaces, but the truth is the people in those spaces will just do it for less. So if you now look at these three categories of work, what you see is AI lifts the creative labor and they, it is everything you dreamed AI could do. Uh, it guts the middle class and it creates lots of jobs at the low end So it's not like work will go away, but the simple truth is low autonomy, low wage power. It's not the kind of jobs we're wishing for our kids. So uh, we, all of us, uh, South Africa, America, India, we need to be thinking, how do we pull as many people uh, up into those jobs where it is you. You are the unique value proposition. And away from, well, if, we just, if you just knew this one skill, because I, I guarantee you, if that skill is economically valuable, but it is routine, some jerk like me is going to automate your job away.
2: Get <laughs> okay. into the creative economy. No, I, I, that, I, thank you well, for that. That was uh, truly inspirational. And you know, for, for what I love about creativity is that the more you practice creativity, the more creative you are. It's a, it's a type of uh, skill that only uh, gets greater with the more you use it, right?
0: Yeah, it's learning to learn. Uh, it turns out that the people have the best life outcomes, and this has probably been true of all of human experience. The people who have the best life outcomes granting all of the limitations that life places on us uh, are the ones not that know a specific magical skill uh, or the ones that went to the right university per se, but it was the people that learned how to learn so that whenever life gave them a new problem, they could learn a new solution to it. Uh, Obviously that doesn't magically transform the world. Uh, Living under apartheid simply made some things impossible for the majority of people in South Africa, but even amongst them, the people that had the best outcomes were the ones that learned how to learn. And that will only become more true as AI becomes more invasive in our lives.
2: No, thanks so much for that. Um, We're gonna have some closing comments uh, around, you know, if if anyone who's watching wants to embrace AI or use it in their business more or in their personal lives, how can they do that? Uh, Let's have some closing comments uh, starting with you, Mark.
1: So I think my comment is more about, uh, we have to impress technology, we have to drive the right culture, the right skills. And as much as AI is enabling and reimagining a lot of processes and helping us solve uh, some of the community challenges, it's likely to result to some of the biggest inequalities, especially if we don't make the right decisions around technology. The future will be bright for organizations and countries that will impress technology, that will redefine the future, that will uh, you know, um, come up with a new definition of work that is supported by technology. Those that will not do that are likely to fall behind, and it's important to start. It's important to start putting together the foundation of understanding that um, everything is, is, is changing, and everything is changing exponentially. And to be a part of a brighter future, you have to reskill. You have to start uh, creating a definition of work and processes so that organizations can be much more relevant. Because everyone is changing. Uh, the digitization um, uh, uh, platform is actually globalized today, and we have to make sure we keep up with what is happening across the world. Thanks, Mick. Thanks, Mark. And uh, Vivian, some closing comments for
2: you. How can we embrace this tech move? Yeah. Uh,
0: obviously, I have already been a huge advocate for embracing the human side of it and preparing uh, our society for that. And that requires us to change education. It requires us to change the way we do work. Uh, but let me give a couple of more um, technological uh, and tangible examples. And in fact, I wanna echo something Mark said. Uh, One of the biggest challenges of artificial intelligence is inequality. And uh, a very tiny number of people, companies and countries essentially have a monopoly on the AI infrastructure in the world. Uh, It's not that no one else is running these models, but very few people can run massive models at scale without the help of uh alibaba or amazon without it running in china or america and i think that needs to change and one of the fundamentals to me is ai acting in my self-interest needs to be a civil right it needs to be something all of us can expect as much as we can expect a lawyer acting in our self-interest a doctor keeping our privacy We have to expect AI because right now it only serves the people that build it, even when it works perfectly right. Even when you take all of the bias out of the system, uh, the purpose of AI as it is released in the world is to make Jack Ma and Jeff Bezos just a little bit richer. And I don't have to think that either of them are bad guys to think that what is in their self-interest is not in mine. Um, it is a profoundly powerful technology and if we don't recognize that right now it is increasingly concentrating power in the hands of a small number of people, then we are going to be surprised about the future that we're all going to be living in and there are things we can do about it. Um, uh, Europe should build its own AI infrastructure uh, so we don't have to run everything on EC2 or Google Cloud. Uh, I think Africa, you could get the big organizations, whether it's FMB and NetBank and Napsers and others to come fund it or more of a continent-wide process and think, Uh, let's bring the academics together with the corporate side, with the governments, and let's build some actual local infrastructure to empower our own local populations. Uh, So uh, that I believe is what the policy side of the technical issue should be. But again, the fundamental starting point is build people, Uh, build the most amazing people you can so that this tool is actually put to good use.
2: No, thanks so much. Uh, I'm so upset that we've run out of time, um, but thank you to our two amazing guests for today uh, and for all that you're doing. We're gonna be following both of your progress uh, and all these crazy ideas and these incredible um, new, new algorithms. Uh, and thank you so much for being so open and for sharing your insights and views today on how we can embrace this changing face of AI. That's all we have time for today. I hope you really enjoyed that please make sure to go and subscribe to our Exponential Africa on our podcast channels or our YouTube channel. Uh, We really, really would appreciate, subscribe, and keep watching and learning and making a positive difference in the world.